quote, mothers were left with their babies for 30 minutes before the start of the study to engage in kangaroo care. Following this, the babies included in the study were transferred to the procedure room, which is dimly lit, tranquil, and this was where the venipuncture procedure was performed. The mothers were also taken into the room with the baby. This was performed between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. when the environment is at its most quiet. This is what I meant by this is an efficacy study. And it's an efficacy study because these are all very, very specific elements of controlled, regulated, or well-regulated environmental pieces that would not be this way in a real-life scenario. And because it's not a real-life scenario, we cannot extrapolate to the real world. We can only say that this study demonstrates efficacy, but then this would need to be replicated in an effectiveness study. Welcome to the Clinical Appraisal Podcast. My name is Ian Lane, and on this show, we discuss the science and theory of nursing. I'm a critical care nurse and PhD student in nursing science focused on measurement and methodology. Importantly, nothing I say constitutes nursing advice. This is education only. And if you want to get in touch with me, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. If you want to donate to the show, links are in the description. And otherwise, like, Comment, subscribe, and share the show if you enjoyed this episode. As some of you know, I have become very interested in collating all of the randomized trials that have ever been conducted on nursing outcomes or nursing interventions. And there are comparatively few of them as you compare it to medical outcomes or medical interventions. In the medical space, or really in any other healthcare discipline beyond nursing, if you look for randomized trials, you will find a fairly large number of them. In medicine, it's copious. In nursing, there are about 5,000, and it really depends on whether you include quasi-randomized trials or pragmatic trials. It depends on whether or not you include feasibility in pilot studies. I am not including pilot studies. I am not including feasibility studies. I am not including pseudo-randomized or pragmatic studies. I am not including quasi-randomized or quasi-experimental studies. I am only considering true efficacy or effectiveness RCTs and in that collation, I have come up with approximately 5,000. I'm still whittling some away. And the reason I'm whittling away is because many of them are not actually about nursing interventions or about nursing-specific or nursing-sensitive outcomes. That does not mean that I'm only interested in clabsies and caudies and bed sores or pressure injuries, for example. But I am interested in things that nurses do and... I'm also omitting things that nurses do at levels that are not inclusive of traditional bedside RNs. So nurse practitioners, there is some interesting research in the nurse practitioner space that I am not including. There's interesting research in the anesthesia space I'm not including for obvious reasons. Um, but in terms of bedside nursing, the bedside nursing vantage point, I have found approximately 5,000 
which are being whittled away as I go through some that are just irrelevant. But every once in a while, I find some that are interesting and relevant, and then I go through them on the podcast. (laughs) So this is what my nursing research playlist on YouTube and my podcast will at least sample in terms of the nursing science that I've been reviewing for this particular uh, scoping review. Now, this is an informal scoping review. I don't necessarily intend to publish this per se, but I find it fascinating nonetheless. And what I want to highlight here is today's paper, which is by two colleagues from Turkey, from the University Faculty of Health Sciences. I won't butcher their names, so I apologize, but please read their names on the screen and give them appropriate credit. This paper was published in 2023, so this year, in the journal Pediatric Research. The paper is called Effects of White Noise and Facilitated Tucking During Heel Stick Sampling on the Pain Response of Healthy Term Newborns, a Randomized Controlled Trial. This uh, paper is interesting for a number of reasons. One, our Turkish nursing colleagues have done a profound job at contributing to the RCT space in nursing science and focused on nursing-specific outcomes, which I very much appreciate. That's an interesting point unto itself, that in one of the wealthiest and most scientifically contributory countries in the entire world, the United States, the US, Canada, other places are just, they don't hold a candle to these smaller countries like Turkey, which are doing tremendous work in this space. We could be doing this work. This is a call to action for United States and North American nurse researchers to say, we need to be doing things like this. And we're not. Because we are so focused on putting out qualitative studies because our PhD students are afraid of quantitative research. And so we have this profound influx of dissertation work that is qualitative in nature that never does anything, that never goes anywhere, that's never followed up on, that never informs any other work, that's not used in a pragmatic way or leveraged in some way, and then built upon. It sits there, I was going to say in a dusty shelf or in a bin, that doesn't happen as much anymore. It essentially sits in this virtual closet and doesn't it's not used qualitative research is hypothesis generating it needs to be used for the generation of new knowledge in another context and then verified at least from my perspective verified with quantitative research that somebody else can replicate and reproduce there is no reproducing qualitative research it's by virtue of the fact that It is impossible to replicate one person's feeling in a moment. And so if science is about prediction and replication, then qualitative research cannot fit that bill. That does not mean that it's not important or valuable or contributory, but it is contributory in a way that is very specific and for our purposes, if we want to compete on the scientific scale that other disciplines in healthcare do, and if we want our research to inform an actual evidence-based practice in nursing, we need to be able to produce research like the Turkish nurses are producing, such as in this paper. So my rant aside, and I don't mean to be so loquacious, let's get into why this study was done. Clearly, 
managing pain in infants is an important thing, especially within newborns, because their experience of pain so early on in life can be catastrophic for them. And nurses are really the ones that are both trying to manage that pain while also trying to intervene and are the ones causing that pain with, in this case, heel sticks. Various types of injections are common in neonatal and pediatric nursing, and newborns are, as anybody else, averse to being stuck, except they don't have the psychological or behavioral skills to be able to cope with something like this. They also don't understand what's happening. All they do is feel raw discomfort and agitation and anxiety. And there are a number of things that researchers have learned over the decades about what can help calm or alleviate some of this in infants and newborns. Some of these things include white noise, which resembles the internal environment of the mother's womb, as well as facilitated tucking, which we'll talk about in a minute, which also, at least in some ways, simulates the, a baby's position in the womb. And the reason that this study was published, and the reason it was conducted, rather, was because there's some evidence for each of these practices at alleviating pain to some degree in newborns. But which of these or their combination is more important for the efficacy of pain reduction or ameliorating the pain response is not well known. It's not established. So these authors attempted to establish this. What I will say as we go through this paper, this will be shorter than our normal um, hour and a half long <laughs> paper uh, reviews because it's a pretty straightforward paper, although there are places where I want to nitpick a little bit, which we can get to. There are various places throughout this paper where the authors talk about the effectiveness of something, and then in the conclusion they talk about how they've demonstrated that something is more effective, which I'm, I'm being intentionally vague because I don't want to give away the results at the beginning of this uh, video, but what I would like you to understand from the get-go is that the way that this research study was set up, it was set up in such a way, which it, it's fine, there's nothing inherently wrong with this, um, but it was set up in such a way that the conditions were essentially as perfect as they could be, such that the authors could be as sure as possible that what was contributing to this decrease in pain response was their specific intervention, either white noise or facilitated tucking or both, and not something else, like environmental inconsistencies or maternal presence inconsistencies or something like that, which are all known to influence neonatal pain and anxiety. So the reason that's important in this context is that makes this an efficacy study. Recall the difference between an effectiveness study and an efficacy study is efficacy can hopefully demonstrate that something may or may not work, but it does so in the most optimal conditions, say in a laboratory, for example, or 
in conditions like this in the context where you're controlling all the other variables in such a way that only these variables are allowed to vary. In an effectiveness study, it's real world. All of these normal variables will vary in their usual way in such a way that it reflects the real world. It reflects real life. In the real world, neonates are getting stuck not between 5 and 7 a.m., but any time that they need to be stuck. They're going to be stuck, some of them with their parents there and their mothers holding them, some with their parents and their mothers not there. Some of them will, you know, just the environmental milieu surrounding them will be different at different times of day in different hospitals. And if this study were replicated in that environment, in a different context where those variables were not tightly regulated, this would then be an effectiveness study. And then if these results were also shown in that context, then we could say not only was this replicated and reproduced the same findings, we would also be able to say that they are effective. Effectiveness implies other contexts, other uh, sites, and such. When you examine research studies, typically in the introductory section, so the very first thing is usually an introduction or background, and then it's usually methods, results, conclusions, right? Um, Or discussion, findings, etc. The introduction or background section gives you the context to provide you the information of like, why did this study need to be conducted? What was the point? Why is it important, right? Usually, in the introduction or background section, the very last sentence or the very last paragraph describes what the point of this specific article is. So let me read the very last paragraph. Quote, There are no comparative studies in the literature that provide data as to which of the two methods, in this case facilitated tucking or white noise, is more effective or about the effect of the combined application of these two methods on pain in neonates. Hence, our study was performed to identify the effect of white noise, facilitated tucking, and their combined application during heel stick sampling on the level of pain in healthy term babies, end quote. I think that adequately sums up what we discussed already and gives you a really good sense of what they tried to do and why, and I think does accurately describe what they tried to do. It leaves little ambiguity. It is easy to understand. And this is incredibly important because the more obscure and vague and nebulous you become in the way you describe this, the harder it is for people to follow. And then also the easier it is for you to incidentally manipulate people throughout the rest of the paper, which they did not do because they were very clear up front and they remained clear throughout the paper. Importantly, both facilitated tucking and white noise are sort of simulacra of womb life for a neonate. At least that's the hypothesis, or one of the hypotheses, that white noise of a certain decibel range and frequency, it sort of emulates the sounds that an infant might have heard in the womb in the recent past. There are, of course, challenges with these hypotheses from a philosophy of science perspective and a philosophy of mind perspective, but we can kind of set those aside for now. Because 
whether the hypothesis is or is not an accurate explanation sort of is irrelevant since the prediction of these things has borne out in prior literature to some degree. Um, facilitated tucking is another example where you hold the baby's arms and legs in a flexed position close to the midline, and this allows the baby to move the extremities and allows them to move their hands to their mouth. It allows them to feel like they're in a position sort of simulating how they might have been in the womb. And essentially, these are our two intervention categories, white noise or facilitated tucking prior to heel stick, as well as the third category, which is the combination of the two. So let's discuss the materials and methods section. This first piece talks a little bit about the study design and the sampling, which we'll discuss briefly. The study design section states that this is a randomized clinical trial at a single medical center, and that this is described in figure one. We're going to jump down to figure one briefly. Figure one if you're looking on the YouTube version, is here on the screen. It is just a consort diagram that shows, as we talked about in the last video on the research, on nursing research, this is really a diagrammatic picture of where all of the participants went to at each phase of the research. And if they were excluded, why were they excluded? So for example, in this study, during the enrollment process, they assessed 105 people for eligibility and excluded 15, 13 of which did not meet their inclusion, two of them declined to participate, uh, and then they randomized 90 people to three different groups. But this consort diagram is really just, a, like I say, a visual depiction of where people fell throughout each phase of the research. Another thing I want to make clear at the outset is that although I thought the authors did a nice job with this paper, this study design was not registered or pre-registered somewhere. I don't know if this is common practice or not common practice in Turkey as it is elsewhere, like in the United States, for example. But typically with a randomized clinical trial, you register the clinical trial in advance. And the purpose of doing this is to reduce bias further by making certain that what you allege your research to be about and your outcomes to be centered on and what your goal is to do with your research ends up being what you actually do in the end, and that that can be independently verified by reviewers and consumers of your research post hoc after this paper has been published. So what I am unable to do at this point is to go back and look to see whether this was published as a pre-registration somewhere, and if so, did what they say in this paper, does it map on or load on to what they said they would do, or what they claimed that they would look at in terms of outcomes and how their methodology would play out in the actual paper. In terms of their inclusion, inclusion criteria were, quote, being a term baby, so they did not allow preterm babies to be in involved in this study, which also makes it an efficacy study, not an effectiveness study. But you do have to have your sample criteria, right? So this is fine. Quote, being with the mother, being a healthy baby who was being fed orally, having been fed at least half an hour before the procedure, not having received analgesics or sedatives within the last 24 hours, not having any complications that would prevent pain evaluation, so intracranial hemorrhage, neuromotor growth retardation, 
or basically any neurocognitive deficit that would make it so that it might make you seem you as this infant, for example, seem as if you are not in pain or you are in more pain or kind of deviating you from the median in some significant way that makes it seem like you're on one end of the scale or the other. But really, it's not due to pain. It's due to this other neurocognitive defect. Quote, not having undergone any painful procedures within the last hour. So that could include blood draws, aspirations, ophthalmic examinations, etc. Having no prior history of surgery, not being connected to mechanical ventilation, and being able to draw the baby's blood on the first try, since the pain level can change on the second try. End quote. Some of these criteria are interesting for me because this paper really was about pain responses. There was nothing in this paper that required blood to be drawn per se. I suspect that the reason that they included this is because this was conducted in the context of a real hospital where they had real nursing care to continue to do, and that they actually needed to do these heel sticks for real reasons. <laughs> and it actually was the case that they had to get a second try for some of them, specifically because they actually needed blood to be able to carry out the rest of their job with these these neonates. That's just my hypothesis. Um, I was. It's not like these people are being recruited just for the sake of the study and then that's it like they're presumably hospitalized and they're there for a reason you know etc so just like we did when i discussed the lack of pre-registration there are other things you want to look at when you read a method section about a randomized controlled trial one of them is how is it randomized you know there are different randomization methods that are used and you always want to find where they discussed the randomization and then how they actually utilized a randomization methodology. So in this case, they say, quote, babies who met the study criteria and whose mothers gave informed consent were stratified according to their gestational age, and then randomization was performed by casting lots. I read this a bunch of times. I don't actually know what casting lots are. I've looked it up a little bit. It seems like casting lots are more like picking names from a hat. Um, like putting paper slips in a hat, picking them out, kind of. I've also seen it kind of referred to as like rolling dice, but I think the thing is like any way, the way that you describe randomization always begins with, well, when you roll a six-sided dice that's even and not biased in any direction. Actually, it usually starts with when you flip an even coin that's not biased for one side, blah, blah. Um, but ultimately, casting lots seems to be described by their next line, which says three slips of paper of the same size, quality, and thickness were marked as white noise facilitated tucking and white noise plus facilitated tucking and then folded and placed in a cloth bag. A health worker, other than the researcher, was asked to draw the slips and an equal number of babies were assigned to each group using the blocking method. A couple things. They don't talk about their blocking method. So again, remember, blocked randomization is done to prevent the investigator's ability to predict where everybody is going to go based on an, um, I guess, even isn't the correct way to say it, but on a predictable pattern of randomization. Because this pattern makes it more difficult for them to be able to predict it, it makes it less biased. However, pulling paper from a hat increases the risk of bias. 
and they say a health worker other than the researcher, but they don't say a health worker who is not involved in the research per se. And as you'll find out in a few moments, this study was conducted with two nurse assistants, who are two research nurses, one of them to rate the pain and the other to perform the, the heel sticks. And so was it one of them? Because technically they were other than the researcher. They don't really say. So I'm not in love with the methodology they use to randomize or randomly allocate participants in this study. And it's not completely unbiased. However, or at least it's it's conceivable that it's not completely unbiased. However, is it much better than not having randomized at all? Absolutely it is. They go on to talk about their sample size and power. In the power analysis that was performed prior to the study, quote, the pain score variable cited in the study by so-and-so, Karakuch and Turker, was used. The power calculation with beta 0.14087 <laughs> and an alpha 0.05 risk power equals 0.859. So basically their power would be 86%. It determined that 27 neonates should be included in each of the three groups. To account for attrition within the groups, the target sample for each group was inflated to achieve a total of 90 babies, 30 in each group. There would be 30 babies in facilitated tucking, 30 in white noise, and 30 in white noise plus facilitated tucking. Quote, the sample comprised 90 healthy term babies from the population who met the criteria for inclusion in the sample and whose mothers gave consent. This, of course, is more than sufficient to meet the statistical power of 0.86 or 86% for this study. Again, some of the things that should stand out at you when you read something like this, these are 90 healthy babies. Will the pain amelioration component of this, if they find something in this study to be efficacious, will it hold for unhealthy babies? Will it hold for preterm babies? We actually cannot make claims about that from this study, no matter the effects. Under procedures, quote, the researcher took the baby's anthropometric measurements, height, head, and length before the blood draw with a tape measure and recorded the results. Interesting, because that never really became anything of significance in this study, but you know, I appreciate that they highlighted that information. Quote, mothers were left with their babies for 30 minutes before the start of the study to engage in kangaroo care. Following this, the babies included in the study were transferred to the procedure room, which is dimly lit, tranquil, and this was where the venipuncture procedure was performed. The mothers were also taken into the room with the baby. This was performed between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. when the environment is at its most quiet. This is what I meant by this is an efficacy study. And it's an efficacy study because these are all very, very specific elements of controlled, regulated, or well-regulated environmental pieces that would not be this way in a real-life scenario. And because it's not a real-life scenario, we cannot extrapolate to the real world. We can only say that this study, if it finds something important, demonstrates efficacy, but then this would need to be replicated in an effectiveness study. The authors go on to state, quote, the study was conducted by a total of three people, two nurses and one of the researchers. One of the nurses drew the blood, 
The other evaluated the pain independently of the researcher. Quote, each baby's healed blood was drawn by the same nurse, and each baby's facilitated tucking was performed by the same researcher. The same nurses took part in the study each time. I wish that they had some external folks who were not part of the study team to do some of this. I'm sure resources are scarce as they are here and everywhere else, uh, but it would have been nice. For example, they say the nurse who conducted, the nurse who would conduct the neonatal infant pain scale, the NIPS, was familiar with how the NIPS was to be measured. There was only one nurse available to do this, and they were part of the study. This increases bias as well. It would have been great, for example, if this could be recorded and then a separate nurse who was familiar with NIPS, who was not involved in the study, could have done this evaluation. Later on in the study, you find out that not only was it this one nurse, it was this nurse plus one of the researchers. And so there's bias there. Even though their kappa coefficient, their inter-rater reliability, as it were, was not sufficiently distinguishable as to be two separate uh, scores, they were similar enough, it still bodes more poorly than if there was a separate set of raters because of the bias that these two have because of their investment in the outcomes of the study. The study comprised three groups, quote, these were the group listening to white noise, the group placed in the fetal position, which I don't know why they changed the terminology here, the fetal position. That's the facilitated tucking position, which I guess you could consider them to be, uh, I guess, the same, although fetal position has different connotations for me, I think. But nonetheless, that's the implication of facilitated tucking, is that you're putting him into a kind of fetal position. Just for whatever it's worth, for those listening who are interested in doing trials, don't change your language, and or studies in general, really. Don't modify your verbiage mid-paper. Quote, and the group to which both of these were applied, fetal position plus white noise, or facilitated tucking plus white noise. The blood drawing procedure was performed for all the babies with the same technique, the same nurse, and in the same physical room setting conditions. Additionally, a 70% alcohol solution was used. Only the babies whose blood could be drawn at the first try were taken into the study. What happened to the few of them who were not taken into the study? Are they listed in this uh, consort cohort diagram here? I don't know where they fall. They're not clearly identifiable. They need to be clearly identifiable. Where are they? Quote, before the procedure, the researcher performed and recorded a respiration count for the babies. Additionally, a pulse oximeter was attached to the baby's right foot and the peak heart rate and SpO2 values were recorded. In each of the three groups, the researcher and the neonatal nurse independently scored the pain levels of the babies before the procedure according to the NIPS and the results were recorded. There's at least one component of this that, again, smarts a little too much for me of researcher bias. The researcher themselves was performing and recording the respiration count for the babies. Respirations can increase just like heart rate can increase during pain. They do a good job of measuring heart rate, you know, peak heart rate, etc. But 
the researcher is the individual who's most likely to have bias based on their objective investment in the outcomes of the study. And it is all too easy, as we all know in healthcare, for somebody to just slightly miscalculate or misconstrue respiration counts, especially because neonates breathe so rapidly sometimes that it can be, you know, not that unreasonable to accidentally undercount some. This is why you need to have external people doing this to limit bias. Also, in the same way that I mentioned earlier that this is a kind of efficacy study and not an effectiveness study, because this is the first study of its kind, even though it's not a pilot study by technical standards per se, it is the first study of this sort. So the fact that it's the first one, it hasn't been replicated yet, the fact that it's a little bit too much bias in different places, the fact that it's efficacy and not effectiveness, these should all be considerations in how you choose to interpret the findings of this this paper. So on page 46 here in figure two, you can see the three groups. You have group one, white noise, group two, facilitated tucking, or what they also call fetal position and group three, white noise plus facilitated tucking slash fetal position. They tell you a little bit about what the groups were and how they were conducted. So for example, group two, facilitated tucking. The baby's arms and legs were held in flexed positions close to the midline of the torso in side-lying positions so the baby was able to move his or her extremities. The baby was held in facilitated tucking position for one minute before the procedure was conducted. Interestingly, for the white noise group, the baby was exposed to white noise for two minutes before the procedure. Did the amount of time the white noise group got exposed to this make a difference, considering that in the results, which I'll show you momentarily, the white noise group seems to have done a little bit better than the facilitated tucking group, according to the, the authors? This gives you a little more insight into what exactly they did. It's important that you go through these figures, too, because... You can read the paper as much as you want, but unless you get this extra information, you might not see, for example, that, oh, it's actually two minutes for the white noise group, where it's one minute pre-heel stick for the facilitated tucking group. We're still in the method section here. Quote, the pain scores of the babies before, during, and after the procedure were independently evaluated by the researcher and the nurse who was not performing the heel stick sampling. Cohen's kappa test was also used to test the consistency of the scores given to the same situation by the nurse and the researcher in the evaluation of the NIPS pain scores. The ratings of the two individuals are completely compatible. Kappa coefficient 0.953. This essentially means that there is almost perfect overlap between the two of them. This figure would almost assuredly decrease if there was more raters. And this is, I can tell you for two reasons. One, the more raters there are, the more variability there's bound to be, just statistically. There's going to be a, most likely some kind of a normal distribution of ratings, and that in and of itself would bring this figure down slightly. The other thing is that I think the uh, kappa coefficient, um, or rather the Cronbach's alpha coefficient, which measures internal consistency, of the NIPS is like an average, oh, it's actually up here on the screen. It's an average of 0.83 or 83%, at least during a vaccination procedure in 1999. And so the Cronbach's alpha for the NIPS ranges between 0.75 and 0.88. 
And that's still, it's sufficient internal consistency to be useful as a measure, but it's not amazing. Um, and it just goes to show that the more people you have rating, the more this number is going to drop. And that's okay. And of course, Kappa and Cronbox Alpha are not exact. They're not the same coefficient, but they are very similar. They go on to say that the neonatal introductory information form was developed by the researchers based on some literature that they reviewed, that this form contains questions about the baby's characteristics. They don't actually state what the characteristics are, how they're going to be used, in what context, but I'm guessing this has to do with their demographics table, which we'll go over briefly in a moment. Nearing the end of the methods section, they state, quote, the resulting score of the NIPS is directly proportional to the severity of pain. That is, as the score increases, the severity of pain increases. I only point this out as a pain scientist who studies measurement and methodology because to state that this is directly proportional to the severity of pain is a very specific claim. You're claiming that with this measurement, you are measuring pain per se, and not behavioral indicators that suggest to you that there's pain, and that based on that, there's a proportional relationship. But that's that hypothesis is it's an interesting one, because it claims that you have knowledge of pain per se, and not behavioral indicators of suggestions of pain. The NIPS will give you behavioral indicators of what we think is pain, but you're not measuring pain. You're not measuring. It's not like you're doing quantitative sensory testing or something like that. That and and like you're not doing QST testing with like neuroimaging to confirm, you know, pain centers and like this is just not something that is being done. And the NIPS is a latent variable proxy measure for behavioral indicators of something that suggests that pain is increasing or decreasing, or that there's some pain level. But that level, we are assuming correlates with pain based on prior validation studies. I say that because that's an important phrase. Like the way that that's phrased is, I want people to understand in terms of the way we measure pain through questionnaires like the NIPS, you are only getting latent factor scores for something we assume to be suggestive of or a proxy measure for pain. You're not directly measuring the severity of pain experienced. For the statistical analysis section, the comparisons of the three groups, I'll read starting from here. Comparisons of the three groups, the three methods of pain amelioration, were performed with the Kruskal-Wallace H test for non-normally distributed data. The Monte Carlo chi-square test was used for the analysis of the crosstabs created, and we'll come back to that, but a Monte Carlo simulation is used in the context of what you would have liked to have done for a Pearson chi-square, but don't have five or more observed, or five or more more observations for one of the cells, you end up having to simulate data as though you had those data. And SPSS, I think typically, if they're 
let's see, are they using SPSS? They are. So SPSS usually simulates 10,000 times. It's not an unreasonable method. In fact, it they had to use a method like this to be able to do what they wanted to do based on some of their cell counts. And for, for I think for formula feeding for two of the cells, they just had one baby who were who were fully formula fed. We'll look at those in a second. But the fact is that they had to do a Monte Carlo simulation if they wanted to do a chi-square test. The issue is that I don't know how they did this exactly. And if they used several thousand or maybe 10,000 simulations, like what the implications of that are. Uh, some of this also because it wasn't pre-registered. And this is another reason for pre-registration. It kind of harkens back to the point I was making. It's important for us to be able to look and see what did they plan to do a priori, and then how did they actually do it post hoc. But as I say, it's not unreasonable to use a Monte Carlo simulation for this chi-square test. It's just important for us to know how exactly this was done and what the justification for certain elements of it were. And then, of course, because the Kruskal-Wallis test does not give you more than like median ranks, you end up having to do for paired comparisons, for for pairwise comparisons, rather. You have to use the Mann-Whitney U test as though you're doing a non-normal ANOVA. And then from there, you can kind of do some of the other things to figure out effect sizes, like with eta squared. And the whole point I'm making here is that they're like they're using appropriate tests for this, but the justification for some of this needs to be better fleshed out. And that's the other benefit for researchers, actually, of having something pre-registered, is if you have pre-registered your trial and you've explicated your justification for all of your statistical testing there, then in the paper you can actually say, this trial was registered at blah, blah, blah. You can see all our justification there. Statistical significance was set at p-value of less than 0.05. We knew that from the statistical power section. That's fine. We're moving on to the results, but, and for those of you who are watching on the YouTube channel, when I highlight something in blue, blue for me just indicates it's a methodological piece. Uh, purple I use for results, for statistics. Yellow I just have for something that's like an important piece of information that you might want to consider. Um, in any case, this blue piece here, for those who are watching, states, quote, all of the babies included in this study were term infants. Again, none of them were preterm. Accompanied by their mother, their overall condition was good, and they did not have any prior history of surgery. Babies who were admitted to the NICU for various reasons, including hyperthermia, respiratory distress, hyperbilirubinemia, they were excluded from the study. End quote. This is important, again, because they're only including term babies, no preterm babies. They're not including anybody sick enough to go to the NICU. They're not including unwell babies. But a lot of the babies who are heel stuck for various reasons are sick. So because these babies are essentially well babies, and because this is an efficacy study, we can say nothing about the effects of this practice or these practices based on these findings or what I'm about to share with you, we cannot apply them to sick babies or preterm babies, which are often inherently sick. 
So let's move on to the findings. What did the study show? Quote, no significant differences between groups in terms of their baseline characteristics. The groups were similar. All of the p-values greater than 0.05. If we look at table one, we have neonatal characteristics and the intergroup comparison of all 90 participants. And you can see the p-values are all greater than 0.05. And this was for gestational age between 38 and 40 weeks, mode of delivery, vaginal or cesarean, sex, and mode of nutrition, mother's milk, mother's milk plus formula or formula alone. This is where the Monte Carlo chi-square simulation tests were performed. And that is this column here to the left of the p-value column. The one thing I have highlighted here is this p-value of 0.057 in mode of delivery between cesarean and vaginal with, you can see, more uh, cesarean deliveries than vaginal deliveries. But the reason I have it highlighted here is just to say that this p-value is non-significant, but I find this kind of funny because, and this, this is, has nothing to do with these researchers per se, I just find this interesting because in results sections with p-values this close to 0.05, in the discussion people will say, oh, this p-value is, quote, trending towards significance. And the thing is, that's not how p-values work. A p-value is either significant or non-significant. It's not trending toward as though it's on a spectrum. And I mean, if you want to think of it as trending toward because of this asymptotic assumptions that are inbuilt to the idea that underlies the t-distribution, that's fine. However, in that case, you actually cannot know if the p-value is trending toward or trending away from 0.05 or less. So the point I'm making and the reason I bring it up is because nobody ever says trending towards significance when they're looking at p-values in this context. Nobody says, oh, this one was non-significant, so these groups are close enough at baseline, but it's really trending toward being different. Going back to the results, quote, the pain score of the group that listened to white noise and had been placed in the facilitated tucking position during the application was significantly lower than in the other two groups, with a p-value of 0.001, technically less than 0.001. Moreover, the pain score of the white noise group was significantly lower than in the facilitated tucking group. We actually don't know... I have a note here that says, what about post hoc multiple comparisons testing? They actually did that with their Mann-Whitney U tests because you had to. Um, how they did that, though, I actually can't tell based on the table that this is located in, but we'll get to that in a moment. What I want to know for this one is, is like, what is the magnitude of the effect or the effect size, and what's the p-value here? When they say the pain score of the white noise group was significantly lower than in the, in the facilitated tucking group, because that information is not present. And even above that, where it says that the white noise plus facilitated tucking was significantly lower than the other two groups, p-value of less than 0.001, there's no effect size there. Now, I can assume if the statistic they give me in that table is a chi-square statistic, I can essentially compute an eta squared as though it was an ANOVA, even if a non-normal ANOVA, like a man with an EU, and have something like a coefficient of determination about 0.5 or half a standard deviation. 
Um, also, like 50% of the difference is due to the combined group, for example. That That's fine, but I have to compute that. If you don't know how to compute that, you're not going to know offhand what the effect size is. The p-value and the effect size are not the same thing. And the p-value can only tell you if the groups differ with a statistical significance, but it cannot tell you the degree of the effect, the magnitude of the effect. They go on to say that procedural peak heart rates were higher in the facilitated tucking position group than in, actually, it doesn't say, than in some other group, both groups, I actually don't know. Um, but the procedural peak heart rates were higher in the facilitated tucking group, less than 0.05. Not only do I not know the comparator for that content, I actually don't know where that appears because it doesn't show in table four. So I don't know how to verify that that is actually true. And, quote, a significant difference was detected between the groups in terms of total duration of crying, p-value of less than 0.001, end quote. No difference was found in this study between the oxygen saturation rates of the newborns during the procedure, p-value of greater than 0.05. I have to point out, as a pediatric nurse dealing with babies on a regular basis, that this SpO2 number, this oxygen saturation rate, is not a reliable number in this context, especially with facilitated tucking, the whole point in the description in the introduction that the authors gave rightly is that it allows for the free movement of arms and legs, and you're going to put the SpO2 monitor and probe somewhere on the infant's hand or finger or toe or foot to be able to measure SpO2, and they're moving these extremities in such a way that you're not going to get a reliable number. How do you average out your SpO2? Are you actually averaging it over the minute? And even so, if it's not a good pleth, are you actually going to be able to, to appropriately average that? I just don't think that oxygen saturation measured by SpO2 monitoring in this context is really going to be a useful metric regardless. Taking a quick peek at table four on page 50, you can see the variables here for the NIP score, the heart rate, and the oxygen saturation, and then the total uh, crying time per group for all three groups, and the number of participants in each group, which would be 30 per group. And then because the Kruskal-Wallis test uses the median rank as an outcome, you can see the median for these different groups, four, four, two, etc. As well, you have Kruskal-Wallis statistic. This is here in this, what would be this? One, two, three, the fourth column on the right. The thing is, the Kruskal-Wallis H test is a statistical test, but it's not a statistic. A statistic, like a sample statistic or a parameter, is, as one example, a Pearson correlation coefficient or a Pearson chi-square critical value or a t-test critical value or an f statistic you know and so like this column if this 53.168 for example if that's the critical value is that a chi-square and if so you could use that chi-square to demonstrate that the eta squared effect size 
might be close to half a standard deviation. On the next column over to the right, you can see the p-values, and these are some highly statistically significant p-values here for the NIP score, for heart rate, and for total crying time. The thing that you cannot get from this, and you actually... So, a couple things. One, uh, the next column over the farthest right has multiple comparisons, and this shows you the sequences that they looked at. They looked at groups one to two, two to three, one to three. They evenly looked at all of these different groups, except apparently for total crying time, they looked at two and three and one and three, but not one and two for some reason. I actually don't know why, and I'm just noticing that now, so that's interesting. But it's hard to know what this actually represents because it's just the group number. It's just, you know, white noise, plus facilitated tucking, or facilitated tucking plus the combination of the two, or white noise plus the combination of the two. Like, I, unless this is supposed to represent the statistically significant post-hoc tests, I, I can't tell. And they don't do a sufficiently good job of explaining what this represents. It's just listed here for us to, to guess. And that's not okay. Because they do make some specific claims about, like, the white noise group versus the facilitated tucking group here. But the Kruskal-Wallace H-test median scores are f both four. So I would need to know more than what this table gives me to be able to properly decipher this information. For example, they say, quote, another result of our study, this is in the discussion section, was that the pain score of the white noise group during the heel stick sampling was significantly lower than in the facilitated tucking group. That would be in table four. But if we look at table four, which is this one, and we look at the pain score and we look at white noise versus facilitated tucking, they both have the same median Kruskal-Wallace score, or really the same NIPS median score, rank ordered for Kruskal-Wallace. And then they have these multiple comparison tests, but we don't know which one's significant with what effect size, and we just know that the overall p-value is less than 0 0.001. That's not that helpful for me, and I can't verify that this statement is correct about white noise versus facilitated tucking. The other important piece about that is because the white noise group got two minutes of white noise prior to the intervention and the facilitated tucking group got one minute, they had double the amount of time prior to the noxious intervention that is under study, the idea that that doesn't have some kind of an effect is sort of up for grabs and that it makes you wonder why everything else was so tightly controlled except for that. And if that isn't merely bias, why they didn't justify the two minutes. Another interesting result discussed in the discussion section, quote, in our study, a significant difference was detected between the groups in terms of the total duration of crying, p-value less than 0 0.001, table four. The group with the shortest duration of crying was the group that, ex that was exposed to white noise and facilitated tucking. And if we look at table four, we can see the p-value is statistically significant, less than 0 0.001, but we're not getting the independent post-hoc test's statistical significance value. We're getting the overall test for the Kruskal-Wallace H test. But if we were to look at these values, the raw scores, look at the ranges for total time crying for white noise and facilitated tucking. For white noise, you have 71.75 
I'm guessing that's, oh, seconds? 71.75 seconds to 90 seconds. And then facilitated tucking is 73.75 to 85.5 seconds, whereas the white noise and facilitated tucking combination group was 56 on average, 50 seconds to 62.5 seconds, which the upper bound for this value is lower than both of the other groups. And so I would imagine that it is that group that is the most statistically different from the other groups. And so now we come to the conclusion. Beginning with the limitations, they say a limitation of our study is that it included only term babies and the procedure of healed blood collected. I don't know what they mean by and the procedure of healed blood collected. Like what about the way the healed blood was collected was a limitation? Why would it be a limitation? Wouldn't it be the same method of healed blood collection that we all use for heel sticks for most patients? But I totally agree with them. The, the biggest limitation is that this included only term healthy babies and not preterm or sick babies. They also go on to say that a key limitation of the present study was the lack of blinding, which, fair enough. And they say for their conclusion, quote, the concerted use of white noise and facilitated tucking in combination during heel stick sampling is more effective than the use of either one of these methods alone. And then go on to say, quote, the use of white noise to reduce the pain of the neonate during heel stick sampling is more effective than facilitated tucking. The problem that I have with this conclusion, the way it's written, is that it talks about effectiveness. Again, we're going to hearken back to the way that I described this in the very beginning of the podcast episode. This is not about effectiveness. This study is about efficacy. This is an efficacy study. It is in idealized conditions, in the perfect context or the as perfect as possible context for this type of intervention. You have the almost flawless, healthy infants that you're dealing with here. We're not talking about a real-life scenario. This is not an effectiveness study, which means you cannot say anything about effectiveness per se. So what do I think about this study? I mean, number one, this study is, I think, important. It's an important contribution to the pain management space in nursing, and pediatric and neonatal nurses need to know this information if it is efficacious, it needs to be demonstrated in effectiveness studies. I think our Turkish colleagues have done a nice job setting up and analyzing a fairly straightforward study. I would have liked to have seen pre-registration and more justification of certain elements of the statistical analysis plan. But because their statistical analysis plan has at least face validity for me, I think that this is sufficient. The issue for me is the fact that this is an efficacy rather than an effectiveness study and cannot be said to apply to any sick infants. We cannot extrapolate this, and it has no external validity for anybody ill, which means that for those of us who use heel sticks in the hospital as nurses on sick patients, we can't actually say anything about how this will impact our babies. Now, is it worth at least trying based on this studies contribution in combination with the totality of the evidence in this space for the sake of we don't have many other options in the way of non-pharmacological care in this sense sure but in the stringentest scientific sense the external validity of this project is severely lacking 
I would also rather have seen a little bit less bias. And what I mean by that is I would have liked to have seen people external to the study team do the reviewing and rating of pain scores and the, for example, counting of respirations and things of that nature. I would have liked the researchers who were essentially the analysts as well to be disconnected from the actual patients as opposed to being on the ground with the patients. I think this would have made their findings a lot more reliable in the sense that they would have been less prone to investigator bias. But I also recognize that the resources available to these individuals may not be as high as they are in some other areas or some other disciplines. Overall, I think this is an interesting and important contribution to the nursing literature and will act as a nice jumping off place for an effectiveness study later. And I commend the authors for doing this work and for contributing to this important space in nursing science.